we forget that God is the author of every single sentence in this letter. Therefore, every single sentence has coherence and is placed together forming this beautiful letter. So we see that the gospel of peace, Paul can use and talk about peace in the midst of war. Wait a sec, but I thought that peace would be the cessation of war. It's the cessation of war with God. But once you become friends with God, now you have a war with the world and Satan. Brothers and sisters, when you're communicating with someone, let Christ dwell in those words and be reflected by the way you write text message. Oh, but text message is supposed to be a short thing, but you are a Christian. Our lives must be theocentric. The movies you watch, the music that we listen to, the places we go, the websites that we access, must be bringing glory to God. It's a joy to have you with us. I want to invite you, please, open our Bibles to Titus, the book of Titus. Titus 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifested in his words through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. You may be seated. Oh, Lord, we, we ask you, as Sam was praying, we say, Amen, speak to us. I pray that your word would go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. Help me to be faithful. Help the congregation to be faithful, Lord. We all have responsibilities here this morning. So please help us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, you all have heard the, the sentence that familiarity breeds what? Contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. And we can apply that to the scriptures. I will not say contempt, but familiarity can breed a certain superficial knowledge of the Bible. I believe that one of the greatest obstacles in knowing more the Bible is actually our knowledge of the Bible. And that might sound like a contradiction. How can you say that the greatest obstacle in knowing the Bible is the knowledge that we have of the Bible? And, and the reason is that I think what hinders us from knowing more and more of the Scriptures and having a better and deeper understanding of who God is and who He has revealed Himself to be is what we think we already know of the Scriptures. We create a certain familiarity with words and verses. And we actually do not really know what these words and these verses mean. So, for example, we talk about a godly person. Christians, we, we have the vocabulary of godliness. So we talk, oh, so-and-so is such a godly person. But do we know what godly means? Biblically speaking. We talk about eternal life, but do we know what eternal life is, biblically speaking? 
We speak about hope. We sing about hope. But we have a worldly understanding or a biblical understanding of hope. How about grace? We are always singing about grace. We talk about grace. But what is grace? We talk about Jesus Christ. And a lot of times we think that Christ is actually his last name. And we don't understand. We, we, we don't know that Christ is actually a title. How about peace? We talk about peace. We pray for peace. But what, what is biblical peace? I fear that often we, we have a, a, a much Eastern understanding of peace than the biblical understanding of peace. So my prayer is that throughout these sermons that we went through the greeting of Paul here, uh, my prayer is that words that are familiar we would become not familiar anymore. The words that oftentimes come out of our mouth in a very ordinary way would actually be extraordinary. I pray that the, the, the words and verses and vocabulary in the Bible, the Oftentimes we take for granted and we think that we know that we actually would humble ourselves and say, Lord, help me to understand these things here. So that's my prayer as we walk through this greeting and we see so many words that we are so familiar and oftentimes we, we do not know what they actually mean. So this morning we're going to continue our journey and we're going to come towards an end of the greeting, this glorious greeting. We're going to be looking at verse 4. And we're going to look at the greeted one, and that's Titus, and then the greeting itself, the last part of verse 4. And I just want to remind you that verses 1 through 4 of Titus is crucial. It's so important. Uh, a lot of times we want to just dive into the letter, and, and we are hoping and thinking that all the, the, the deep theological Riches are in the body of the letter, and we forget that God is the author of every single sentence in this letter. Therefore, every single sentence has coherence and is placed together, forming this beautiful letter. Also, I mentioned before, and then Ben and Emily came to me, and they said, that's so true. When I was saying that verses 1 through 4, it's like in an opera. And right in the beginning, if you go to an opera... You have the first notes being played, and those notes will tell you that that's what's going to be going to be played throughout the opera. Well, they call the overture, and that's what we see here. Paul, as the conductor, he's just bringing the main key notes in these first four verses that will be played throughout the letter. So they're very, very important. We saw just a brief summary here. We saw verses one through three. The greeter. And who is the greeter or the author? Paul, also known as Saul. And we see how Paul identifies himself as Paul, uh, servant or slave of God. That's his identity. He sees himself as a slave. And then he talks about his calling. He's not only a slave, but he's a slave called to be an apostle. And we see here from verses 1 through 3 that Paul lived, Paul's life was for God's glory in the life of the church. If you ask Paul, Paul, what is the purpose of your life? God's glory 
in the life of God's elect. Everything that Paul said, everything that he wrote, everywhere he went, was for God's glory in the life of the faith of God's chosen people. Paul understood that God saved him and left him here on earth to serve his people. And what Paul did to, and what the Lord did to Paul, he did to all of us. Why hasn't God taken us the moment he saved us? Because he has something much bigger for us. He's conforming us into the image of Christ. And also he's using us for his purpose in his church. So, let's move on. Let's move to verse 4. And now we come to the greeted one. We saw the greeter and now the greeted one. And that is Titus. You see, remember I was talking about familiarity. So, we become familiar with the name Titus. But who is Titus? Somebody wants to ask you. There is a book called Titus in your Bible. Who, who, who was this guy? What would you answer? What would you say? Titus is, according to Galatians chapter 2, Titus is not a Jew. He is a Greek. He's a Greek man with a Latin name, Titus. And Titus was a very common name in the Roman Empire. It was one of the most... You know how you go through the 80s, you had certain names. And in the 90s, you had certain names that were very popular. Right? Early 2000s. So if you went to the first century, in the Latin-speaking areas, Titus was, or Titus was a very common name. I mean, no doubt, just think about in 70 AD, who is leading the troops of Romans in taking over Jerusalem? Titus, that was the name of the general who was commanding the troops. So I like what Daniel Aiken writes about Titus. He summarizes his life as, imagine Parachuting behind enemy lines, working alone in occupied territory, and fighting off attacks from all sides, all the while tasked to accomplish a life-or-death mission. In a very real sense, this was Titus' position. We can playfully say that this brother in the faith was Paul's green beret, his spiritual knave seal, who could go into the hard places and set things in order, get things fixed, and makes things right. This man, he has been with Paul by the time of this letter. He has been with Paul for about 20 years. So he knows Paul's teachings. He knows Paul's theology. He's an excellent man to explain what Paul is asking under the inspiration of the Spirit. Besides that, it's safe to say that Titus was a prime example of the sort of Christian that Paul wanted to promote in the churches. And that's what we see in Titus chapter 2. Paul is going uh, to tell Titus to be the example. Because Paul knew that he was an example to the churches. So, if we put together some hypothetical dates here. So, for example, Galatians, getting, in Galatians, getting from Galatians chapter 2. If we think about Paul's conversion, and, and here is just approximate. If Paul's conversion was around 34 A.D., and then Paul's second visit to Jerusalem around 46 AD. And then Paul, think about that, 34, around 34, Paul gets saved. About 46, Paul is in Jerusalem and he brings Titus with him. So that means that Titus was already ministering with Paul before 46. 
And then if you think about Paul second, being released from the Roman imprisonment and starting ministering around 62, that would give us this timeline of Titus and Paul together for over about 20 years. 20 years. That's a long time with Paul. Uh, Galatians 2 tells us something very important about Titus. We read saying, but even Titus, Paul says, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And what Paul is doing, he's getting Titus. And remember, the early church is debating, what do we do with the Gentiles who just got saved? Do they need to come under the Mosaic law? And Paul brings Titus as an example. He's just a living example of what it means to be saved by grace alone for the Gentiles. Here it is, this man. He's telling everybody to look at Titus and say, here's what it is. The grace of God has saved him, and there is no need to come under the Mosaic law. So if you think about 20 years between this fellowship of Paul and Titus, we can imagine that Titus went through a lot with Paul. <laughs> Many trials, dangers, toils, shipwreck, maybe, hunger, afflictions. Like Paul, he became the target of criticism. We see that in 2 Corinthians 12. Therefore, Titus was tested and confirmed by Paul and other Christians. So he had an intense internship with Paul. And Paul was not an easy person to be around. And he was with Paul for 20 years. How about the role of Titus? Uh, what was Titus? He was not a, a pastor or an elder in the sense of the office, even though he had a pastoral heart, of course. But we can see that Titus served as a representative or a delegate of Paul. It was Titus whom Paul called to represent him in the troublesome situation in Corinth. They think about Paul calls Titus. He's having a bunch of issues with the churches in Corinth. And Paul is calling Titus because he trusts Titus and he knows that Titus can go and help with the situation there. Not only that, in the matter of collection. Imagine, you are so well trusted by Paul and the other churches that he is the one in charge of the collection of money. You're not going to give a bunch of money to a person that you don't trust. To travel all over the place. But they trust Titus. So his assignment among the churches in Crete appears to have been equally to serve as Paul's representative. To appoint leaders in the church, rebuke rebellious opponents, to teach, to remind, to discipline, and above all, to lead the Cretan Christians to break from the Cretan system. So we can say that Titus, what, what was Titus? He was an apostolic delegate or an apostolic representative. He would represent Paul. He was connected with Paul. So that's why Paul, turn with me to Titus 3. Or sorry, Titus 2, Titus 2, 15. He says, declare these things, Titus. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Why? Because he is the apostle's delegate. Let no one disregard you. Titus 2, 15. Here's how Paul speaks about Titus. Beautiful expressions of affection, and we start to, to get a glimpse of who Titus is. So, for example, in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, 
Even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my what? Brother Titus there. Paul is not at rest because his little brother Titus wasn't there. Or 2 Corinthians 7, 6 through 7. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. He brings comfort. Or 2 Corinthians 7, 13 and 15. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus. Because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. And his affection for you is even greater. Or 2 Corinthians 8, 16 through 17. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care that I have for you. That's amazing. He has the same affection. Paul says that Titus has the same affection for the church that Paul himself has. How much affection did Paul have for the church? Vast, willing to die for the church, just like Jesus. And he says, Titus has the same affection and love for the church that I have. Or 2 Corinthians 8, 23 as for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. Or I urge Titus, 2 Corinthians 12, 18, I urge Titus to go and send the brother with him. And then he, it's a rhetorical question. Did Titus take advantage of you? Because some people were, some false teachers were accusing Titus. And Paul is saying, did he take advantage of you? And the answer is clearly no, he would never do that. And he did not do that. And then coming back to Titus 1.4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. So Titus was deeply loved, deeply respected, deeply honored by the Apostle Paul. Imagine that. To have your hero of the faith holding you as a hero also. Paul says that Titus shares the same concerns and affections for the church. Why? Because Titus and Paul, they were generated in the same womb of Jesus Christ. That's why they share the same affection for the church. And all those who are Christians, all those who have been born of God, must also love the church and have the same affection for the church. So Titus is an example to be imitated by all Christians. He was never looking for the spotlight. You don't see Titus looking for the spotlight. He was always looking for a way to serve the church. His love for Christ, for God's people, was so real that he would comfort Paul when he would come close to him. He was reliable, dependent, dependable. You knew that, you could, that he could get the job done. But besides being a, harder, a very hard work, Titus brought comfort, joy, and peace. You see, there are people who work hard. They work very hard, but they don't bring joy, peace. And that's what Titus did to Paul. Instead of accusations, you'd bring comfort. Look what Paul says. That's beautiful. Second yeah. Corinthians 7, 5 through 6. He says, For even when he, we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn. Look at Paul, how vulnerable he's been here. Fighting without and what? Fear within. 
Wait, Paul, you're fearful. Paul, you're going through depression. Paul, you're going through oppression. And that's why he says, yes. But God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. How we need more Titus in the church. More men and women who bring comfort, bring joy. Amen. And Paul calls saying, now let's go back to Titus 1, 4. And Paul calls Titus my true child. And that doesn't mean that Paul had other children or he had some illegitimate or treacherous sons. No, no. He means that Titus is the real deal. And all these other false pastors that are coming to the churches in Crete, all these false teachers that are coming, they're not the real deal. Stay far away from these guys. Titus is my true child. There is so much affection here. Paul is calling Titus his true child. Imagine a, a Jew calling now this Gentile my true child. Remember how Jews would look at Gentiles as dogs, unclean? Paul says he is my true child. And Paul, as you study the life of Paul, the letters of Paul, you see how often Paul expresses his affections towards his brothers and sisters. He's frequently expressing affection towards his co-workers, his brothers, his sisters. For example, if you read the, the letter to the Philippians, he calls those churches in Philippi, my crown and my joy. He's frequently expressing affections. And I think that we Christians must grow in the art of expressing affections to one another. Let me ask you, do your brothers and sisters in the church hear words of affections coming out of your mouth? Or it's always words of complaint, grumbling, murmuring? You see, if there are no affections, if there are no words of affection, because the words, Jesus tells us that the words are flowing from our hearts, if there are no words of affection, that means that there, there is no affection where? In the heart. And if there is no affection in the heart, that means what? A lack of Christ in your heart. So let us, let us express affections through our words. And there is a language of family. My true child, my child. It reminds us that church is God's household. It's God's family. and must be marked by love. And Paul says that he's a true child, and that's an important expression, in a common faith. In a common faith. What's uniting these brothers is the faith. Faith is the glue that's binding this Jew and this Gentile together. And this faith is a common faith. Because there is one Lord, one Savior, one baptism. And there is one faith. And that's the faith that unites Paul, a Jew, and Titus, a Gentile. The faith of God's elect, according to Ephesians 2, breaks the walls between social, racial, economic, and ethnic differences. That's what faith does. Faith unites us to form us as a new humanity. So Paul and Titus, they have koinonia. What is koinonia? Fellowship. Why? Because they have a koinos pistis. They have a common faith. A common faith brings communion, fellowship among the people of God. And that's beautiful. 
I was thinking about so many of you, we are so close. Many of you, I'm closer to you than my family members. And that's because of this common faith that has bound us together, united us in Christ. People hear that I would never be your friends outside Christ. And now we are best friends because of Christ. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, The grace of God creates relationships of a very near and tender kind. Relationships which we will endure through life. Relationships which will outlast death and be perhaps even stronger and more vivid in eternity than they are here. How beautiful it is. That's the gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's Titus. Just a glimpse of who Titus is. And by this description, Paul is telling the churches. You see, Titus doesn't need to hear that. He knows that. Of course, it's good to be reminded of this truth. But it's because of this letter is going to be also be read to the churches. And the other Christians, they need to hear and understand that Titus is the real deal. Not these false teachers that are coming, sneaking, and preaching a different gospel. So let's move to the greeting. So we saw the, the greeted one. Let's go to the greeting. The greeting is grace and peace. And if you read Paul's letters, you're going to see how often he greets the churches with grace and peace. So, for example, in Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians 1, Ephesians 1, Philippians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, Philemon verse 3. Paul is always greeting the church with grace and peace. And remember what I said, familiarity. Familiarity is able to destroy appreciation for these two words. Paul is not doing just, just for formality's sake. It's because he truly wishes and prays for more grace and more peace upon those churches. Thomas Oden, he writes the following, The pastor, and I would say the Christian, the pastor who has forgotten how to say from the heart, God bless you, does well to relearn this from Paul. The pastor who withholds blessing, withholds from his people an essential pastoral function. Blessing the people. I remember preaching to Ruth and I remember Boaz. A godly man reflects his godliness through his words. Always blessing the people. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Once again, we see how Paul is always very generous with blessings. He's always pouring out blessings and benedictions upon God's people. And that's something that we should learn also. And apply that in our communications with one another. Amen? Sometimes you get texts and emails from people from the church, and it's just so cold. If you didn't know the person, you don't even imagine that Christ was there. Brothers and sisters, when you're communicating with someone... Let Christ dwell in those words and be reflected by the way you write text message. Oh, but text message is supposed to be a short thing, but you are a Christian. And when you're texting, texting someone, that's the first time you're texting the day in the week. Man, say good morning, Lord bless you, peace be. I love getting text messages from Charlene. There's always, or emails, always a greeting, a godly greeting, a benediction. 
Don't be stingy with benedictions and greetings. Close with Christ. Amen? It's always lovely to get... And remember, these things are precious. Shows that Christ is in us, that we have been united by Christ. So, and it's fascinating as we study the ancient salutations. And the salutations in the first century, they were very similar to the salutations that Paul writes in his letters. So, for example... If you get the ancient letters from all sorts of places, you're going to see that the, the salutation followed this pattern. So many documents found. So you have the name of the, the person who is writing the letter to so-and-so, and then you have the word greetings or the Greek harem. So you find they have found so many letters, and they always have the harem, greetings. And we see that even in the New Testament. So, for example, in Acts, Acts chapter 15, verse 23, we read the apostles and the elders, your brothers, they see that those who are writing, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, Haren, greetings. Or we also see the same pattern in Acts 23, 26. Claudia Lysus, to His Excellency, Governor Felix, Haren, greetings. So that was the pattern. But what Paul does is amazing because he is going to change, a small change, with a tremendous and profound ramification. So, for example, here you can see people write the name, Chu, and Haren. Paul changes to his name, Paul to those who he's sending, and instead of harem, he says what? Haris. Harem, greetings. Haris, what? Grace. A small grammar alteration with a profound theological information. You see, we are so familiar with these words, grace and peace, that we forget how powerful, how beautiful, how glorious they were. And when we remember that these very words are coming from the one who used to hate Jesus Christ, who used to hate the church, as he's pronouncing grace and peace, there is nothing of formality here. This was no customary greeting card on the part of Paul. Every time he wrote these words, grace and peace, he had a profound understanding and a sense of law for what each word meant. The only reason why Paul was writing those letters to those churches was because God's grace had captured him. And now he was in peace with God and in peace with God's people. That's the only reason why he can pen grace and peace. Let us look at these two words. First, grace. Haris. Grace is so vast a word, right? If somebody asks you, define grace. We usually have that very superficial definition is giving to something something to someone who doesn't deserve that, right? Usually that's how, how we define grace. And yes, there is, one, there is an aspect of that, an undeserving gift, but it's so much more. Grace is so much more. Grace, are, grace captures the whole gospel. What is grace? Grace is the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel of grace. I like what Mouse writes, William Mouse, he says, Haris, grace, is a one-word summary of God's saving act in Christ. 
stressing that salvation comes as a free gift to undeserving sinners. And then he says it's an enormously significant word in Paul's theology. Listen to that. Of its 155 occurrences in the New Testament, 100 are in Paul's letters. Because Paul understood what amazing grace meant. Grace, we can define as this undeserving gift of God when He calls people out of death into life. It's this undeserving, something that we could never achieve, where God carries us out of the grave of sin and brings us into His presence. That's what grace is. And we know that because... We are going to see in Ephesians chapter 2. But as you think about grace, grace for Paul is basically resurrection from death unto life. Thomas Reiner, he says the following, Grace in Paul's letters is not just unmerited favor in the sense that one may choose to receive or reject as a gift. Grace is the impartation of new life. Grace is a power that raises someone from the dead, that lifts those in the grave into new life. Grace is not merely an undeserved gift, though it is such, but it's also a transforming power. Grace imparted life when we were dead, and grace also raises us and seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. The whole life, the whole Christian life, is a life of grace from beginning to the end. Why? Because our lives, from beginning to the end, they're wrapped up in Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus is the embodiment of grace. So Paul says, look how Paul says in Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, 5. Here's a wonderful definition of grace. We are singing about grace. Here what Paul says, even when we are dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. What is the engine moving this resurrection? By grace you have been saved and raised up us with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Look at that. So, on that, so that in the coming ages He might show what? The immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own. It's the gift of God. So grace is not just a, a, a gift that you don't deserve. It, it's much more. Because sometimes if you get a gift that you don't deserve, you can choose not to open that gift, right? You, you can choose not to open, but not saving grace. Ask Paul. If Paul could, he would refuse to open that gift. But when saving grace comes, it's literally the resurrection. And that's why it's undeserving, because we don't have power to accomplish and raise us to life. And all Christians will be for all eternity God's trophy, proclaiming the riches, the immeasurable riches of His grace. Another aspect of grace, as we are thinking, is that grace is very similar to the concept in the Old Testament of chesed. There is the Hebrew concept of chesed, God's covenantal faithfulness to His people, His gracious, saving, covenantal relationship, and grace is inseparable from chesed. So, 
grace, grace, God's grace, grace, the pardon and cleanse within. And this grace, Paul tells us, look at with me to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. And now we see that this grace, just like John tells us, John tells us, and the Word became flesh and dwell among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Jesus is the embodiment of grace. So in Titus chapter 2, we read, For the grace of God has what? Appeared. And that's what? A person. Grace came in the person of Jesus Christ. So, when Paul is praying for grace, he's reminding Titus and all the Christians that they are in Christ and we need more grace, we need more Christ in our lives. And this grace is so powerful, it's so strong that it captures us, it kills us, it revives us, it resurrects us, it empowers us, and preserves us. That's what grace does. So what is grace? All these things. All these things. What is grace? Grace is the gospel of Jesus Christ who came to save me when I could never save myself and raise me because I was in completely state of depravity because of sin. I was dead and Christ came. That was grace coming and raising me out of the graveyard of sin and bringing me to God's glorious presence. Not only grace, but he says grace and what? Grace and peace. And peace is always the fruit of God's grace. Grace is the root. Peace is the fruit. There is no peace apart from God's grace. There is no peace with God apart from the saving grace that we have in Jesus Christ. That's why there is an order. Grace and peace. Because first grace and that leads to peace. It's the saving act of God in our lives that leads us to a shalom, reconciliation, harmonious relationship with God and His people. It's God's grace in us that enables us to believe and have peace with God. In Ephesians 6, 15, in the context of war, as Paul is telling us to put on the full armor of God, he tells us to put... The sandals, he said, get the sandals. And he tells that the sandals are the gospel of peace. Going back to Isaiah 52. How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news. The good news of peace. So we see that the gospel of peace, Paul can use and talk about peace in the midst of war. Wait a sec, but I thought that peace would be the cessation of war. It's the cessation of war with God. But once you become friends with God, now you have a war with the world and Satan. The new covenant, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they say that the new covenant is also called the covenant of peace. That's beautiful. In Isaiah 9, 6, we often read these verses during Christmas. The Messiah is called the Prince of what? The Prince of Peace. 
And as Isaiah develops this theme, as we come to Isaiah 53, we know that this Messiah, who is the Prince of Peace, he will bring peace through his chastisement, through his suffering. He provides the shalom, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53. And the same Messiah, according to Zechariah 9, Zechariah tells God's people, Rejoice because the Messiah is coming. And he's coming humble and mounted on a donkey. Who is that? Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 9 of chapter 9, And this Messiah, he shall speak peace to the nations, or better, to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Because of Christ, and now he's under Christ, he can speak peace to the Gentiles because of the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul is following, following the pattern of Jesus following the pattern of the Old Testament saints, where they would greet one another with shalom, peace. But that's not just a greeting, brothers and sisters. Paul is saying that he's reminding that they already have peace, and he's wishing even more of this peace with God. You often think about peace, and somebody's asking you, what is peace? How would you define peace? How would you define peace? For us, most of us, peace is just tranquility, right? A peace of mind. Peace is primarily, in the scriptures, related to reconciliation with God. Peace is primarily reconciliation with God. That's why Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, have been justified by faith, we were... We have peace with God. Have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. Reconciliation. Maus, once again, he says, in classical Greek, erene, peace, meant the cessation of war and eventually include the idea of peaceful relations. In the Old Testament, shalom describes the external absence of hostility and the ensuing general sense of well-being given by God. Believers do not just feel peaceful. They actually are at peace with God. Look at that. And the feelings of peace and security that evolve from such a relationship are more secure than just emotions. That's why Paul says, Therefore have been justified by faith. That's a fact. A lot of times you don't feel like you have been justified by faith, but that's a fact. And that leads to the fact that you have peace with God. That doesn't matter if you feel or not. If you have been justified by faith because you embrace Jesus, you have peace with God. It doesn't matter if you're feeling or not. How often we are not feeling like peace. And that's not only shalom, peace with God, but peace with God and God's people. It's this peace that makes Paul and Titus Members of the same family now. And like grace, peace is a person. Peace is the person of Jesus Christ. So in Ephesians 2.14, Paul says, He is our peace. He is our shalom. So, what is peace? It's the fruit of grace. What is grace? The saving work of the gospel in our lives. That's why we must remember that peace is a state. That's why when the 
author of the wonderful hymn, It's Well With My Soul, is going through so many trials, losing wife, losing property, kids. And he can say, when peace like a river attendeth my and sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Why? Because I have peace with God. Let us continue here because he, so he can finish. And here's where the grace and peace are coming from. The grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Grace and, and peace flow from the triune God. There is no other saving grace and no other peace outside the triune God. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is no peace apart from Jesus Christ. So sometimes we hear people well-intended and let's pray for the peace in Jerusalem. We need to understand how that applies to the church today. And there is no peace apart from Christ. And sometimes we are praying for unbelievers. Oh Lord, please give them peace. They're going through so much. We need to pray first, give them Christ. Because they will never have peace. It's actually a bad thing to have a tranquility of mind when you are heading to hell. But look at the posture of our God. Grace and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The posture of our God towards us, His chosen ones, is a posture of grace and peace, arms wide open, not wrath. Impatience, anger, judgment. That's the beauty of the good news. That God is looking at us, and He's looking at us with a smile full of grace and peace and His arms wide open. And He's described as God the Father. Hmm. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, there are only two entities that are called Son of God. We have, of course, Adam, who later is described as the son of God. But then we have the nation of Israel. And we have the king, the Messiah, who is also called the son of God. And it's beautiful how a Gentile would never be called the son of God. And Paul now is addressing Titus and all those Christians in Crete. He's addressing them as what? Son of God. A Gentile now is receiving the title of the kings of Israel. That's amazing. David was the son of God. How can Titus now be called the son of God? Because by grace he has been united to Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus is the son of God. So therefore, everyone who embraces Jesus, who believes in Christ, become children of God. And now Paul says, And Christ Jesus our what? Savior. Wait a second, Paul. Look at verse 3. You just said that God is the Savior. 
God is our Savior in verse 3. And now in verse 4, you're saying that Jesus Christ is the Savior. Are you confused, Paul? What is Paul doing? Joining. He's stating the truth that Jesus Christ is God. That's the work of the Trinity. Jesus Christ is God. Therefore, we can say that all three persons of the Trinity receive the same title of Savior, Savior, Redeem, Lord, and God. That's why we can we embrace and say, Amen, there is only one Lord, only one Savior, and that is the triune God. Amen? And that's important because there is also, uh, as you see, Paul, we saw last Lord's Day how this title, God our Savior, comes from the Old Testament, and not only the Old Testament, but in particular the Exodus. And now Paul says that, this Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, He's the fulfillment of all those hopes that the Messiah would come and now save His people from their sins. That's what Christ is. And not only that, but there is a polemical aspect. In the first century, especially starting with Nero, Nero especially, officially described himself as Lord and Savior of the world. So the Caesars were known as lords, saviors. They commanded to be called savior. Not only that, but Zeus, the god of the Cretans, was also known as savior. And what Paul is doing here is saying that there is no salvation. There is no salvation whatsoever in Caesar or in any other religion. There is only salvation in Christ, in the triune God. And remember, remember that the Romans, especially Caesar, he was the one promoting peace, the Pax Romana. Caesar is the one who can provide peace. And Paul said, by no means. The peace that he provides is hellish. True peace can only be found in the Lord Jesus. So we finish here. We finish verses 1 through 4. And we start looking at last Lord's Day, how theocentric, how God-centered these first four verses are. And verse 4 is just adding another marvelous layer of God-centeredness to this greeting. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which... God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and the Christ Jesus, our Savior. Very, very theocentric. Would you agree? God is all in all. And that's Reminding us that our lives must be like that. Our lives must be theocentric. The movies we watch, the music that we listen to, the places we go, the websites that we access must be bringing glory to God. So, as we finish and as we get ready for the Lord's Supper, as we behold the grace of God in Paul's life, in Titus' life, as we read these first four verses and we hear about God saving His elect through the preaching of His Word. And then this 
Salvation is the fruit of His grace that produces peace between sinners and God and the sinners and the sinners themselves now united in Christ. It's amazing how if you think about the Lord's Supper, as we partake of the elements, we are actually portraying, we are portraying through gestures, verses 1 through 4. Think about that. As we are holding the cup and the bread and we are eating together at the Lord's table, we are declaring, verses 1 through 4, the gospel. God saving us rescuing us through the preaching of Christ and then saving us and bringing us peace, reconciliation, sitting at his table. And that's a foretaste of eternal life, amen? Remember, the hope of eternal life. What is eternal life? But life in abundance in his presence for all eternity, enjoying his fellowship. And that's what the Lord's Supper pictures. Eternal life beginning now. And that peace, not only with God, the triune God, but that peace among us. Because we come to the table together. So we see in the Lord's Supper, Titus 1, 1 through 4. The gospel of grace and peace. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Even through a very weak, fallible instrument like myself, Lord. It's all by your grace and your power. I pray that your word would bear fruit in our lives. And especially as we prepare to partake of this glorious ordinance that proclaims this grace and peace, the hope of eternal life that we have with you, Lord. I pray that you would not let us, please do not let us partake in an unworthy manner. Deliver us from familiarity with the Lord's Supper. Help us to behold and taste how precious it is to come to your table, Lord. We who once were having meals with demons, now we come and have meal with the Lord who saved us and loved us. We who once hated one another, now we love one another because of this glorious gospel. We pray your blessing, O Lord. Jesus' name.